Hi, I'm Deborah Hamilton. Welcome to my podcast, Why Do Pets Matter? Ten years ago, with my iPhone and a script, I recorded the first episode of the Ultimate Pet Resolution Summit, which chatted with experts about conflicts over animals. Our conversations were intimate, honest, and illustrated how disagreements over animals occur and how those disagreements can reshape people's lives and relationships. In November 2019, I started Why Do Pets Matter, a new podcast that continued these informative discussions. I'm so excited to have you here with me, continuing my exploration into a more meaningful conversation about why pets matter to all of us. My guests and I will share ideas, stories, and experiences straight from the heart, unscripted and holistic. From the bravest moments to the most brokenhearted, we will explore how to resolve disagreements over animals differently. One thing I know for sure is I want to have more meaningful conversations that will help all of us unlock that deeply felt human-animal bond that drives the emotions of conflict. Hi, it's Deborah Hamilton, and today we talk with Jen Edmussen. Oh my God, it was a wonderful conversation about breeder contracts, about how to speak to your new owner, how to speak to your breeder, what should be in a contract, what shouldn't be in a contract, and what to do if things go awry. How do you handle things? And how you handle things probably dictates how the relationship moves forward. So let's go see what Jen has to say. Hi, it's Deborah Hamilton, and thanks again for coming to another episode of Why Do Pets Matter. Today, I am here with my very good friend, Jen Edmundson. She's an attorney like me, and she shows dogs like me. She shows clumber spaniels, which I love. They are about my speed. I should probably get one as I age and get new body parts because I'm sure it works better with a clumber than an Irish setter. Uh, she's in Wisconsin, and I have her here to tell us why do pets matter to her. Jen, thanks so much for being here. Hi, Deb. It's great to be here. Thanks for asking me. Um, so why do pets matter? Um, yes. Why do me? pets matter to you? Our only question. And then we run. Go ahead. So, I mean, pets matter for a lot of reasons, right? I love all my pets, but um, today I wanted to talk about why pets matter because they bring people together, right? So yep. all of us who show dogs and love dogs, we love to share our dogs, right? We have friends with the same breed. We have friends with different breeds. Um, a lot of people in my social circle these days are dog people. You know, if I look on Facebook, I put up a lot of stuff about my dogs because I know most of the people who are reading it are dog people. Um, and one of the things that really struck me, so we have bred three litters of clumber spaniels. And one of the things that really struck me with our first litter was it was so much fun to meet the people who were buying these puppies and now they're like members of the family. And that was seven years ago. And I have, you know, they haven't been huge litters. The first litter was seven and we kept two, but I'm in contact with most of the people who bought puppies from that litter. So for seven years, I've been following the progress of these puppies and their people. Um, and that's been just really fun, really fun for me. And I'm looking forward to, I hope, many more opportunities. And also, you know, kind of as an amusing side note, I guess, people picking up their puppies, I have never made so many people happy in such a short period of time. I think we had three or four puppies that went home in one weekend 
first of all, no one is ever late to pick up a puppy. They'll always be early. And second of all, they're just so stinking happy. Now, in my legal career, this was why I hated litigation, because people say, thank you very much at the end of the case. I hope I never see you again. And yeah. that's if you won. Like, that's if you won the case, right? They still never want to see you again because it was such a horrible experience. Estate planning is complete nine, 180 degrees, right? People get done, they sign their documents, and they go, thank you so much. I feel such a sense of relief. This has been on my list for like five years. And I'm so relieved that I'll, I won't be leaving my loved ones a mess when I die now because you've made a plan for me, um, which I know, you know, you help people do that for their pets too. So, you know, bringing people together, I think is really one of the main reasons why pets matter. So I, I, I love that. Uh, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but I love that because I don't want to lose this train of thought. So when we as breeders uh, send those puppies down the driveway, it's the best of days and the worst of days, because by the time we let them go, they're usually about 10 to 12 weeks and they really are just uh, refuse creators. Um, I would say yes. something else, but I'm trying to be nice. Uh, it's a family show. Uh, so we're glad to see them go because it's one less refuse we have to pick up. However, we are so grateful to start that relationship with the new owner. Tell us a little bit, because it really is why do pets matter? It really is important how a breeder um, starts that relationship going forward. Because sometimes I hear from clients of mine, and you've probably heard from clients of yours, that the breeders are a little overbearing. Um, they are a little difficult. They sometimes you know, provide contracts, or maybe not, that are very voluminous uh, with a lot of do's and don'ts. Uh, and quite frankly, our puppy owners, uh, as you said, you, you create happiness. This is the happiest day for them. It's the happiest day for you. And you and I both know as attorneys, the likelihood that they read any of the contract as they picked up the puppy uh, were too slim and none. Uh, because they yes. saw this wonderful puppy, it was earmarked for them, they were going home. So whatever, you know, you wrote in your contract, unless you sent it to them before they came, so they had a chance to read it before that cute puppy went in their lap, usually not happening. Um, and, you know, have a question and discussion before they come so that they can ask questions. Tell me a little bit about uh, your relationship, because clearly, like me, you want to be a mentor and be mentored because everybody loves their dogs differently. Um, and how we can um, educate people on how to be mentors to keep people in a breed or even in a show situation. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really important, Deb. Um, so, and I think it's also very individual. Um, I do hear a lot about breeders being overbearing and I can understand that because in my practice, I also review contracts and so I see some of the overbearing provisions that people put in there. Um, for my part, what I've tried to do in our contract is kind of take a light hand, right? I don't tell you know, people what they have to feed the dog. I, I think I have a very general statement about they have to provide appropriate nutrition, you know, water, veterinary care, and humane treatment, things like that. Um, very general statement. But then I'm happy to talk to them, and I do talk to them about what we feed our dogs, for example. 
I do send our contract in advance so that people have a chance to read it because I think that's important. And then I also try and talk to them as much as they want. I mean, you know, one of the puppies that we sold out of our first litter, so he's now seven. Um, I hear from that guy like once a year, he sends me a picture of the dog on his fishing boat because that's what they like to do together. And then occasionally he comments on my social media posts. If I have a picture of a dog, he'll say like, is that Towns's, you know, nephew or his mom or whatever. So that's, you know, we keep in touch a little bit that way. And that, that meant that when there was a health issue that came up, he didn't consult me about it in advance, which I would have, you know, greatly appreciated, but he did let me know after the fact. So at least I can factor that information into my, you know, mental library of things we need to know about our dogs as we're breeding them. Um, and then I have another from the same litter. She actually has one from that litter, one from the next litter that um, lives far away, but we keep in touch on Facebook and she sends me pictures of the dogs all the time. They send us dog biscuits for our dogs because they make them. Um, and we just, you know, when they come through here for our family vacation, we get together. And I think if you kind of gauge how each person, like they may not really want to be involved in shows. Maybe they do, but maybe not. But they might still want you to be available for questions. So you don't have to be overbearing in order to necessarily have a positive impact in the life of the dog and of those people, I think. I agree. You know, I agree. It's you can so kind of make it an individual thing. How much is too much right. um, and how much is not enough. So right. as you said, I love the way you put it. Well, a health issue came up and he told me after the fact. And some um, breeders would have gone into orbit uh, because they didn't call. And how do we, and I know you and I struggle with this all the time when we breed litters ourselves or when we um, discuss matters with breeders on what to do in that situation. Uh, is, it, is it better to go into orbit or is it better to do what you did, which I think um, kept the relationship alive, which is it's over now. The dog is healthy or not healthy or whatever the difference yep, is. And, and we learn from that interaction, A, well, maybe I need to reach out to this person more because they don't feel as if they should call me before they do whatever they do. Uh, or B, um, I at least, he at least called me afterwards. And you, I find you can't make them new, new owners or owners after six or five or four years feel guilty. Um, you really no. need to make sure they uh, understand that you are here for them. And that's a delicate dance. And I know you've had that in your practice as well, where people come and want to enforce paragraph seven of their contract, which says ABC. And, you know, you go, yep, let's talk about what's in the best interest of everyone here. Yes. And I mean, frequently ABC from paragraph seven is so badly written that you couldn't enforce it if you wanted to. Yeah, that's um, that Chinese menu a of a contract that we talk yes. about all the time. Yes. I mean, it's, they're usually terrible. They did not have a lawyer draft it, review it, even, you know, bless it, nothing. Um, you know, I think one thing from that situation in particular, and it's something that I, well, sometimes I need to learn a lesson more than once, and it's not always about health, but we bought a dog years ago, a different breed who was a great little dog. And the breeder gave me a three ring binder with a puppy manual in it. 
Okay. And it had, yep. here's what I've been feeding the dog. I would prefer you to keep feeding the dog that not you must feed him that, but like, I think it would be a good idea if you kept him on this food, right? Here are some things to expect based on his family background. And it was, you know, it was a good inch thick, maybe a little more. And that is something I have not done. But in addition to a contract, there's nothing that says you can't give people more information that would be helpful or say to them, you know, we're really invested in the health of these dogs. So if something comes up, please feel free to give me a call because we would like to be able to help if we can, you know, we have a yep. lot of experience with these dogs and we would like to know it because we can factor it into future breeding decisions. If it's something that may be hereditary. Right. Uh, so I, I, that's so important. Go ahead. You know, contracts are important, but also building a relationship and building trust so that people want to get a hold of you and understand that there's a good reason for them to do that. And maybe more than one reason. That is so key. I love that you said that because I think a lot of times our need to um, give information and just have sort of diary of the mouth of everything we do and what you shouldn't do and what works and what doesn't work doesn't foster trust and communication and collaboration. Because as you said, one of your dogs lived far away. Now that person sends you pictures all the time, probably feels absolutely fine calling you up and saying, listen, you know, he's not eating today or, you know, anal glands are bothering him or whatever it is that they feel comfortable because you've, you've established this um, uh, relationship over pictures and, you know, happy stars and hearts and things like that, that make them feel as if, well, Jennifer's going to listen to me if I call her. What I find often is the most difficult part of um, issues over contracts is people feel reticent to call the vet, the uh, the uh, client the breeder uh, mm -hmm. because they are afraid of what the breeder is going to do or say. I think that's right. I mean, I think there can be several reasons why people are reluctant to call. I mean, some people to them it's a transaction, right? They want this puppy. They don't want a relationship out of the deal. And, and that can be okay. Like it may be not my preference, but, but it can be okay if I think it's a good home for the dog. Um, some people do want some help and support and that is even better, but you're right because we have these overbearing breeders that are telling people you must do X, you may not do Y. I mean, I heard recently of a dog that was sold on a co-ownership and the breeder who is one of the owners now insists that the other owner must run all social media posts by her. I mean, why? Like you're a co-owner, presumably because you want, you know, to be able to have some say in where the puppies go. Maybe you're paying to help campaign the dog, but it's really that person's dog. You know, the fact that you're still on the paperwork is kind of a formality and you should really recognize that and frankly, just back off a little bit. Because, and you, you know, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just thinking before we started recording, I think you said something about how we, we tend to eat our own. Yeah. And that's one way we do it is by being overbearing and way too, um, you know, managing the minutia of every dog that we sell. And that's just not, not frankly appropriate. 
you, you really need to take the time to build relationship at the speed uh, that everyone in the relationship can take on. Some people are right. coffee um, relationships and some people are, you know, herbal tea relationships, right? So you don't necessarily want somebody telling me what to do. This is my dog. And what you want is, and I know that most breeders would say what they want is they never want to lose contact with their dogs. They want to know what's right. happening with their dogs. And, and one of the things when I do the map plan, which you, you were so kind to mention that I help people make plans about their dogs. But what I always say is if you co-own a dog with someone and you're building this map plan, you have to start there with that person. And they go, but why? I wouldn't ever want to give my dog, my beautiful clumber back to Jen because you know she's a breeder and blah, 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 because they hold all these things in their brain. Uh, and I go, because she co-owns it, number one. And number two, it's unlikely that she would truly want to take the dog out of its environment if it has you know, your husband, it loves or your neighbor who takes it while you're on vacation. So it loves your neighbor. If you present it as there is somebody here, um, I know the contract says, because most of our contracts say you must return the dog. And I know that Thank people you. have gone to the mat to enforce that. I myself have gone to the mat to enforce that. However, it's usually a breakdown in communication or fear of calling someone to give the dog back that creates the violation um, of that uh, that clause. However, if you start with, listen, I really would like to put down in my plans that the dog go to the neighbor because the neighbor knows Fluffy and Fluffy knows the neighbor and, mm -hmm. and she understands that you co-own it. And she understands that if you'd like to get into a contract with her, just like mine, she's happy to do it so that she also knows that you'll come and get Fluffy if something happens to her. And you as a breeder and I as a breeder, if somebody comes to us with a dog we co-own and they offer us that uh, opportunity, we're probably going to say, sure, because God, if the dog is in Wisconsin and I'm in North Carolina, first of all, I can't get there overnight. Second of all, if the neighbor and I have a conversation before any of this is needed and I get a good feeling from the neighbor, which hopefully we will, then yeah, I'm just going to really be on board to say the neighbor would be the next person and we'd open this up. I think what's yeah. lost in a lot of the translation is that um, I loved when you said uh, light hand. It's it's the light hand of discussion. How dare you violate paragraph four, which says, you know, you give me my dog back. Okay, right. so the light hand is, listen, I'd like to make a plan. I know you live in North Carolina and the dog is in Wisconsin. And if for no no other reason, this person will hold the dog till you get here. Exactly, which which you may need. I mean, you know, that could be very important. Yeah. And one thing we talk a lot about in the, especially in the dog show and breeder community is mentoring. And I think people have different concepts of mentoring, you know, but you can certainly mentor new owners or new breeders. My concept of mentoring is that if I'm looking for mentoring, I want to gain knowledge, right? but I don't wanna have knowledge shoved down my throat. I'm a very independent person and I don't, I don't do anything just because someone told me to do it. You know, Sometimes I like to get the opinions of three different people and then make my own decision about, you know. So I'm, if I were to co-own a dog with a breeder, I'm never gonna just breed my fluffy to Max because the breeder says Max is it. If I think that there's a different dog that I like better, or I 
don't like something about Max, I'm going to be like, no, we're not doing that. But here's the, you know, here's the other choice. Maybe we could do this. And I, I think you don't get, you, you catch more flies with honey, right? Right. Than you do with vinegar. So if you, if you go around trying to shove things down people's throats, whether they be, you know, pet people, puppy buyers, or new breeder, whoever you're in a relationship with, it's generally not going to be very workable and you're not going to get the result you want. You're just going to put people's back up. And I always think when I want to be a mentor of someone, I have to be open to learning from them as well. Sure. Because we all handle clumber spaniels differently and similarly. And we may learn something that really is, wow, I've been doing it that way my whole life. And she did it this way. And it's so much easier on the dog or better for the dog because they don't come with their preconceived ideas of how to do something. Right. So, so this is how we do it. Yeah. But I thought of doing it this way. And you're like, wow. You know, also typically mentoring sort of implies that the mentor is older and the mentee is going to be a little bit younger and younger people can really bring to the table, you know, kind of their understanding of our changing world too, and kind of the shifting climate, both at dog shows, technology, you know, there may be ways of doing things that are, now there's a new way of that you can do things that's easier, excuse me, or better, whatever. And younger people may have insight into that. So, and to be, yeah, to be mentored as well as mentor creates that in my opinion, and probably you feel the same way as an attorney reviewing contracts and as a breeder writing contracts and having relationships. If you tend to listen for understanding so that you understand what this person is trying to achieve and give them the opportunity to see if it's going to work out. I mean, if the dog is in danger, that's one thing. However, most people never put their dogs in danger um, intentionally. They might've gotten some great advice from someone uh, that might not work. I know that, you know, in, in my world and in your world, there are often clauses in contracts, like you said, that you have to feed a certain way. You have to have written approval to breed the dog. And I always sit there and I go, oh shit, this is a shit show waiting to happen because if you haven't maintained a relationship with the co-owners, the co-owners retain a relationship and they are open and trusting of each other, almost never happens. And they have a discussion about uh, next dogs uh, and who to go to and where to go to. We all hold our opinions and I can tell you that I bred a girl uh, where everyone told me I was wasting a breeding. It was terrible. And those are the girls who went on to be best in show dogs and national specialty winners. And that breeding would never have happened had I left. I listened to all of the, you know, all of my mentors, but I just had a feeling. So we have to be open as breeders that, yes, you know, I know that, you know, Jen's clumbers are good for this and this, but in my dogs, we need this and this, and maybe they don't have enough. And, but if in, at the end of the day, and I think probably you might feel the same way, if the, the logic is reasonable, I would venture to um, keep the relationship over being right. And then you of know, course, when puppies are born, please don't go, see, I told you they'd all have no tails or whatever. 
Exactly. That is um, something that one of my mentors says. She has been known to, um, if, if she has someone that has purchased a dog from her, let's say, and now they want a bitch, she will say like, well, this, like, let's not use this litter. Like, let me sell you a bitch out of this litter instead, because that'll be better if you want to use your dog down the road. If someone's bought a bitch from her and wants to breed it, and they're talking to her about, you know, what dog they should use, she'll say something like, well, tell me the, the three things you're hoping to achieve from this litter and why this dog would be good for that. And she kind of lets them, I think, reach their own conclusion, ultimately, of whether or not that's a good pairing, but she tries to get them thinking about it. And sometimes, rather than convincing someone to see it our way, maybe it's better if we try and just get them thinking about it. Asking um, them curious questions about why it is they're looking at this dog. Is it just because it's the number one dog in the breed? Well, that's great. However, it might have not enough front and your dog needs front, or it might have, you know, a top line that's not going to compliment your girl or your boy or whatever. So you really have to look at the parts of the dogs. At least that's why you go ask your breeders because they know what parts of the dog you would want to um, fix what your bitch or dog brings to the breeding and what your bitch or dog doesn't bring. And can we, what are we choosing? You know, which are we throwing away with the bathwater? And as I said, you know, sometimes you're like, well, this is probably going to be a shit show and maybe it is. And then somebody's going to get some great, you know, Irish setter puppies or clumber puppies that, you know, didn't pan out, but we've had that in, in litters where we thought everything was going to be phenomenal. And you, I remember breeding and it was a beautiful breeding. And I looked in the box one day and everybody was a boxer, a uh, boxer. Yes. Everybody was a boxer. Their under, their underjaw came out for about two weeks. And I went, oh my God, this oh. is, this is a nightmare. Uh, and because as breeders, we wait and everything caught up with itself, but because of the breeding, I had no idea that the, uh, sires puppies, uh, their bottom jaws would go fat, grow faster across the litter, um, than their upper jaws. Wow. And so wow. you look down one morning went, holy shit, I have a whole litter full of boxers. I can't believe it. <laughs> they aren't supposed to be brachiocephalic. What happened? Yeah, that would be great if you were breeding boxers, but you're not. So. But you're not, right. So when you when you are asking um, to breed a bitch or a dog, it's always good to ask questions, like you said. And then if your breeder isn't necessarily open to any of your suggestions, what are your thoughts uh, when that occurs? So you co-own, you have this contract, uh, your breeder is absolutely stuck at where and who you should go to. What are your suggestions when somebody comes to you, hands you the contract, you read the contract that says that you have to get written permission to breed? What do you do? How do you help them? Wow, that is a really tough one. I would advise them not to sign the contract like that again in the future. <laughs> but of course, that doesn't help them for today. That is really tough. I mean, if you cannot convince the other party of your position then you either have to forego the breeding or breach the contract, right? And sometimes maybe there's a trade-off. Maybe you can have some kind of discussion where you say, well, look, I really wanna to breed to dog A. 
I understand you really want to breed to dog A or to dog B. Can I breed to dog A this time and then we'll breed to dog B next time? Or you can lease my bitch back and breed her to dog B. I mean, sometimes you can find a middle ground like that. Could you do a dual sired litter? Um, I'm not an expert in those matters, but I know it's, it's a thing that one can do these days. And I have seen, you know, then, and the other problem with those contracts, of course, is that, like you say, it's just a, a catastrophe waiting to happen because things do happen. And I mean, I've seen contracts that say this bitch will be bred at age two and a half and the breeder, the probably the co-owner now, the breeder will get to select the stud dog and will get the first pick and all these other things. And then the owner can breed the dog for a second breeding. Well, I mean, what happens if that bitch never gets a second breeding? Right. I have a bitch that was only bred once because she was bred. And then after that, she had some health problems and we just deemed it not appropriate to breed her again. So if there had been a provision or that says like the breeder gets the second breeding, you know, gets to make the decisions, then what? So you can get all these all these issues that aren't exactly unforeseen, but they're unforeseen in that contract. They're, or they're, I should say they're not unforeseeable, but they're unforeseen in the contract language. And then it really, it really does behoove people to talk to each other and, you know, try to give a little grace, understand that things don't always go perfectly because we're dealing with living creatures you know, genetics for all of our hard work is essentially a crapshoot. It's a lottery. You know, as you said, you might breed two Irish setters and get a litter of all boxers. That's right. There you go. I could do that because of the way they do. They, 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 you know, grow. We all know that when we're looking in the box, sometimes there's a day when you just have to turn around, feed them, pick up the refuse and just keep walking and, and pray to the puppy nose gods or something that everything's going to work yeah. out. Uh, so, so we've spoken about a lot here today and there's so much that we can talk about and we may do this over and over again, because I think that talking about how a breeder might come at a disagreement over a contract, uh, versus how a buyer, um, owner, co-owner comes at a disagreement under the contract. Uh, we, the three things I think that we want everyone to take away from here is that, you really should have your contract reviewed by an attorney. I know it costs $500 or $1,000. Um, however, if you're going to do the Chinese menu of take two paragraphs from Jen's um, contract, take two paragraphs from my contract, take two paragraphs from somebody else's contract, both of us would like to say that uh, they may not work together. They may not be um, uh, enforceable in your state because right. there are different things you have to consider in your state. Uh, they may not be enforceable because of the language you use. They may actually negate each other. So you're like, oh God, I didn't know that's what that said, which is why it's really worthwhile to befriend your, um, your attorney who uh, does these kind of things. Make sure you get an attorney who, like Jen, who does these kind of contracts, who understands the lingo. I don't know how many contracts, and I know you have too, we've been called into uh, to talk about them uh, and the attorney who they hired had no idea what they were talking about. Right. It None. happens, unfortunately. Yeah, it happens. And 
And if you want to have a certain outcome, talk to an attorney who knows what that outcome means um, or else educate an attorney. Attorneys love to be educated because then they can hang another thing on their shingle saying, I know how to make breeder contracts. Um, and finally, uh, well, we want to get it reviewed by an attorney. Second, we want to um, explain the contract to the buyer. So I love yes. when you said, you know, here is this person and, you know, the breeder wants A, B, and C, and they haven't talked to them in months. I remember having a, um, a contract dispute where the uh, owner, a pet owner, uh, owed the breeder two litters by the time the dog was four. The breeder didn't talk to the person until the dog was three and a half um, and said, you know, mm -hmm. you have to get all of the medical. And in the contract, it says the, the buyer had to get all the medical clearances for the dog before it was bred. And they weren't able to get, uh, they were going to get 50% of the, uh, or no, 20% of the proceeds from the litter. Uh, mm. And, but they had to pay for all of the testing and things. So there was no mentorship up front. There was no discussion until three and a half. She had to run and get all the things done. And then uh, the breeder took the dog to breed it and then said, you know, we don't think you're taking care of this dog very well. We're going to keep it. Yeah, that's a really a breach of trust, right? Among other things. So I look at these things and I, I say, we really need to make sure that we explain it and we collaborate on what works for each of us. Like you said, you like to take information from one, two, three sources and then move on ahead as you see fit. I did the same thing. It doesn't mean that we're wrong. It just means that we're doing something differently. Be open as a breeder and be open as a buyer to taking in information sitting with it, not requiring an answer right now and making sure that everybody is on the same page and that it's about the dog. It's about the stud right. dog. It's about the brood bitch. It's about how well they're being cared for. I mean, if it's in a great home with a great owner and they decide never to let you breed it, yeah, it can cost you five grand to hire Jen to make sure they enforce the contract because that's how long it takes to go through the courts. And believe me, as a breeder, you have sort of one hand, I don't know how you found it in Wisconsin, but um, in New York and North Carolina and some of the cases that I've consulted on in Florida, your hand's tied behind your back as a breeder because you're seen as this person who just wants to make money off the dog. And here it is in a beautiful pet home. Well, there are contracts and you sign the contract and this is the agreement you made. So how do we matriculate between what I signed to do in a contract and what is seen as monetary desires from a, you know, a breeder, which of course right. we'll go into that at some other point, but it, it just is something you really, I'm sure you've seen that where courts are not necessarily friendly to breeders. Yeah. I mean, I think it can really vary. I have client right now that I had referred to someone else for litigation since I don't do any litigation and they ended up, they did go to litigation and they ended up with a very breeder friendly judge who was himself a breeder, I think, and therefore understood the ins and outs of what was being discussed. But that is certainly not the norm, exactly. It's very not the norm rare. at all. And in fact, now they're having a judicial rotation in that district or whatever. And now they're kind of on pins and needles going, great, who are we going to get? I mean, because first of all, it's going to completely upend their litigation schedule, but also more than likely, it's not going to be someone who has any understanding of the issues. And it's probably not going to be someone who who is as friendly and you know well disposed. So when you know, a client I, comes into you and says, "I just want to sue under paragraph four, do you do what I do, which is I hold my breath because it's not as easy as it looks. No, and you get people who say, "I want to sue under paragraph four. What are my chances?" 
And I always go, well, it's 50, 50. Yeah. You know, I can't predict at what best, at best, I think I would say 70, 20 that you're going to lose. I mean, cause it, it's expensive. It's time consuming. You have to educate the judge. You have to put forward the information that's going to appeal to the judge's sense of law over the judge's sense of emotion and subjectivity. Mm -hmm. So there's so much there that can be lost in translation that you really should think about either taking it outside and, and asking the court to mediate so that uh, you have this conversation so everybody can have cooler heads and you can educate each other because it really is a discussion between the two of you that you can't have. Attorneys right. tend to exacerbate that inability to have that conversation because yes. it's not in their best interest for you to work. I say that with all love and affection to litigation attorneys, but it's not in your best interest to have us work it out. It's in your best interest to, to do what it is we want you to do. And we need to be as attorneys and even litigators, we need to be a little less on that track. We need to really help our clients think about what's in the best interest of the of the relationship and of the pet. So I can't believe we are at time, but I want to make sure we covered the three because the first one was have your contract reviewed by an attorney. The second one is to explain it so that everybody understands it and get information back from your puppy buyer on what it means. When you say, I want a puppy back or I get three litters back, what does that mean? The time it takes, the testing it takes, you have to explain that. You can't just put a paragraph in a, in a contract and they have no idea what that means. You really do have right. to, we call it the touchstone. You know, you have to discuss what it is your, your expectations are of your owner if you're getting into this co-ownership situation, they might love to show the dog and then something happens and they can't. Well, you have to really have that relationship that says, okay, so you can't do that, but I still like to do this. And finally, while you're doing that, being a mentor and allowing yourself to be mentored, like you said, because people are younger, they know things that you might want to add to your situation. We have a guy who bought two Irish setters from a pet store and they're both grand champions now. Oh, well, never say never. And the reception he got was not the warmest, I'm sad to say. However, he has stuck with it and he has created a whole schematic of Irish setters in the world and where you get them from. And he is committed to the breed in spite of the fact that the breeders weren't necessarily open arm and welcoming. And so we really need to work on that. And I think you probably agree in almost every breed club, being open and, and welcoming uh, might not be our strongest suit every day. I don't know if no, you feel that <laughs> it's a mess. Right? So we really have to work on that. If we want this sport to uh, continue, uh, we have to write contracts that actually create collaborative conversations and conscious conversations with everyone. So they know what they're getting into, that they can ask questions without being shut down. If situations change, how do we pivot? Like you said, I loved it. There's a way to work this out. If you take a moment to figure out what's what else could we do? If we be can't creative. do A, yeah, be creative, be curious. Um, I, Jen, ran out of time way too much. I swear to God, I, I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe it. Until next time, Jen, thank you so much for being here. We will do this again because there's so much more we should cover for the breed and the fancy. Um, until next time, this is Deborah Hamilton with uh, Jen Edmussen. She, her, all of her contact information will be in the show notes. And I can't wait to have her back as a guest on Why Do Pets Matter? Kiss your pets for me. The Why Do Pets Matter podcast drops every Thursday and can be found on whichever platform you find your podcast. Subscribe now, invite your friends, and I cannot wait to have you join me in these conversations.